Tonight I'd like to speak about two important aspects of Dharma understanding. To explore a little bit how these two aspects are interconnected. One of these is the understanding of how our dualistic perception arises in the mind. The different levels of duality that we create. Now this is connected with the arising and the manifestation of compassion. Compassion in the heart is born from the awareness of suffering. We could see that this compassion is in some way the intuitive response or the spontaneous response of a heart that's open to feeling the suffering. The spontaneous response of an open heart, compassion. The suffering all around us. You've had two and a half months of it (laughs) quite directly. On any level that we look, when we look outside of ourselves into the world situation, we see an immense amount of pain. Of people not having enough to eat, of rampant disease without proper medicine, People killing one another, you know, in, because of because of politics, because of economics, the amazing amount of social injustice that exists, and the intense suffering that comes from that. You'll see when you come out of the retreat. And again, pick up a newspaper or a news magazine or watch the news on TV. In some way, they're catalogs of suffering in the world. It's quite staggering. And there's suffering in our bodies. Even at best, the body gets stiff, it aches, there's tension. And as it gets older, it begins to break down a little bit. The senses are not as strong or as keen. The body begins to get diseased, dies. Again, a, a good hit for the amount of suffering that the body contains. be interesting to go into the hospitals or old age homes to see the natural condition of the body as it ages, as it weakens, as it dies. There's the suffering of the mind. The restlessness, the fear, the anxiety, the boredom, the hatred, the aversion, the The list is a long one. All of this you're quite familiar with. There's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of sorrow, there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of pain in the world, in existence, in our own bodies, in our minds. If we understand that compassion is born out of the awareness of suffering, And if we take a look and see that suffering 
exists in so many levels, in so many places, outside of us, in ourselves. The question then arises, why is it that the world is not a more compassionate place? If suffering is the condition for compassion to arise, and there's so much suffering, why is there not more compassion? When we investigate this, we begin to see that it's because in different ways our hearts have been closed to feeling the pain and feeling the hurt and feeling the sorrow and feeling the suffering. We resist. We pull away from it. We don't like to feel that. And it's that resistance or that pulling away or that contraction from suffering that bottles up the energy of compassion. In this resistance to feeling the suffering, to feeling the pain, to feeling the hurt, as we contract and pull back from that experience, we solidify a sense of separation. It's as if we're withdrawing our sense of self within us and putting up barriers and defenses in order not to feel the suffering that's there. So not only does it bottle up or stifle the energy of compassion, this resistance and contraction, it also solidifies the sense of dualistic perception because we're separating ourselves from experience. An underlying underlying theme in many spiritual traditions is understanding how this process of separation, of dualistic perception takes place. It was expressed very clearly in the writings of a man named Ken Wilbur, a book called Spectrum of Consciousness, talks about the different levels of duality and they fit very well with our own experience and practice. And it might help to understand in, in talking about these levels of duality, might help in understanding how we create and how we solidify this sense of being separate or how it is that we close off to the experience of the world. The first major level of duality or separation we could call the subject-object separation or the separation of ourselves as an organism from the environment. We have a sense, most of us I think, of being contained within our skins. And there's a separation of that experience on the inside of our skins from everything on the outside. We separate this organism from the environment, subject from object, sense of self from other. So we go from the possibility of non-duality, of being the totality of experience, to this first separation of organism from the rest. It's the beginning of the idea of the difference between some experiences happening on the inside and some experiences happening on the outside. That inside-outside split. There's a further narrowing, a further restricting, another level of duality that happens. And that is when we go from the sense of being an organism 
apart from the environment, to identifying with one part of this organism, we could call it for now the ego mind, and we have the sense of someone in here having a body. And we speak like that in in language. I have a body. And my body does this and that. What is this thing that has a body? That's a further separation, a further split, a further duality of the body from the sense of self, the sense of I, the ego mind, which has it. And we see in, in our experience some of the effects of this split of mind, ego mind, and body. We get very disconnected often from our bodies. Because it's as if it belongs to us rather than us being it. There's the level of separation of organism from environment. There's the level of separation of ego-mind from body. There's a further narrowing, a further contraction. When even within the mind, we disown or discard certain parts of it and identify with other parts. And this great psychologist, Jung, talked a lot about this particular process. He called it the division or the separation between the persona and the shadow. The persona being all those self-images, those ideas of who we are, how we are, We create these self-images, identify with those self-images and discard another whole part of the mind, the undesirable parts or the unwanted parts, the unpleasant parts, the parts we don't like. And we push those away and that's called the shadow. And it's called the shadow for two very interesting reasons. One, because it's the dark side of the mind. It's not seen very clearly. Shadowy. It's also called the shadow because to the extent that we disown part of the mind, part of ourselves, to the extent that we discard these certain qualities, you know, the unwanted or the undesirable ones, they follow us then like a shadow. Right? We find that even though we're attempting to disown and to get rid of them, that very act of pushing them away ties them to us. And so they follow us like a shadow, conditioning the mind unconsciously because we haven't been willing to accept them in our conscious mind. And we've all been working in our practice with beginning to see, to struggle with, and finally to accept that part which has been denied. So you see how this movement of separation happens. It's a continual movement towards further narrowing, further restriction. We go from the totality, from non-duality, non-separation, to separating the organism from the environment. It's a first narrowing. Then we narrow again, not staying with the totality of organism, 
But from restricting ourselves to the sense of self or the sense of ego or I, which has a body. So we pull ourselves in even tighter. We're not satisfied with that. We restrict even further. Pulling pulling ourselves into the persona. This one little tiny part of self-image. And that's who we identify with, discarding or separating ourselves from all the other parts of the mind. And so we imprison ourselves. We pull ourselves into a tighter and tighter prison in which we can operate, in which we can move. And this movement of restriction or contraction could be seen as the strategy of ignorance in dealing with suffering. Because we don't like to feel suffering, we don't like to feel pain, we don't like to feel hurt. When there's ignorance in the mind, when we don't understand how the Dharma works, how it unfolds, in the face of suffering, in the face of pain, in the face of hurt, in the face of sorrow, we contract, we pull back. This process of restriction happens out of the delusion that happiness comes from protecting ourselves from pain and holding on to pleasure. It's quite a common understanding. I mean, probably if you go up to anybody on the street and ask them, you know, what's the cause of happiness? What's the source of happiness? they would probably say something like, you know, avoid pain and get as much pleasure as you can. Because that's the common understanding of ignorance, of delusion, that that's where happiness is. We've all tried that. You know, we've tried it for a long time. And I think, to a large extent, what's brought us all here is the understanding that that doesn't work. Because in that avoidance of suffering, avoidance of pain, avoidance of being hurt, we contract and contract and get tighter and tighter until we're imprisoned in this tight little self of the persona, of the self-image, out of that fear of opening. Simply creates more suffering. Compassion arises when we can begin to open to the suffering instead of contracting from it. And so our practice is really a reversal of direction. Instead of these deeper and deeper splits or deeper and deeper levels of dualistic separation, we begin to reverse the direction and begin to integrate these separations. We begin to open up to the suffering that's there, not not pull back from it. And so not only do we begin to heal all the various splits in our being, the split of persona and shadow, the split of mind and body, the split of organism and environment, As we begin to reverse direction and open rather than contract, we both allow for the arising of compassion as we feel the hurt and feel the suffering, and we integrate. We integrate on all of these levels. The first step in this integration and healing process, we work backwards integrating the conscious part of our mind, the persona, with the unconscious. That is, we're willing to take a look at all of those parts of our mind which we've rejected. 
And it's interesting to reflect a bit in your experience over these past months of just those aspects of experience which at first were so difficult to be with, emotions that we didn't like to feel. And there's a, there's a wide range of emotions that until we bear, we bring the light of awareness and wisdom to, stay in the realm of the shadow. Emotions of fear, emotions of self-hatred, emotions of unworthiness. For some people, the emotion of anger has been pushed aside, pushed down. Or grief. We're each conditioned differently, but all of us have separated out some part of the mind and discarded it. What we do in the practice is to settle back and open up and allow that shadow to emerge from the unconscious into our conscious awareness. We begin to embrace every part of the mind. begin to open to it, to be with it. There are some poems by Ryokan which express very beautifully this willingness and this openness to the whole range of our human condition. To the aspects of suffering as well as the aspects of joy. I'd like to read a few of them. He writes wonderfully about loneliness. And it touches me because I realize how much of our lives are spent in the avid avoidance of that feeling. We fill our lives with so much activity and so much pursuit because we've discarded or disowned that particular, that particular feeling. And here's Ryokan. writing wonderful poetry about it. Light sleep, the bane of old age. Dozing off, evening dreams, waking again. The fire in the hearth flickers, and all night a steady rain pours off the banana tree. Now is the time I wish to share my feelings, but there is no one. Alone, wandering through the mountains, I come across an abandoned hermitage. The walls have crumbled, and there is only a path for foxes and rabbits. The well next to an ancient bamboo grove is dry. Spider webs cover a forgotten book of poems that lie beneath a window. Dust is piled on the floor. The stairway is completely hidden by the wild fall grasses and crickets disturbed by my unexpected visit shriek. Looking up, I see the setting sun, unbearable loneliness. Great images, abandoned hermitage, crumbling walls, a dry well, spider webs and a forgotten book, unbearable loneliness. What's so wonderful about Ryokan's attitude is his openness to this part of the mind in a sense of with a sense of warm-heartedness towards it, with a sense of real compassion towards it. 
The autumn nights have lengthened and the cold has begun to penetrate my mattress. My sixtieth year is near, yet there is no one to take pity on this poor old body. The rain has finally stopped and now just a thin stream trickles from the roof. All night the incessant cry of insects, wide awake, unable to sleep, leaning on my pillow, I watch the pure bright rays of sunrise. There's a very refined delicacy of perception when we're not consuming our energy in avoidance when we can settle back and open up to that dark and mysterious realm of the shadow. It's fantastically rich. This, this last little haiku from Ryokan expresses the compassion that's possible with this kind of openness. Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world very all-embracing attitude. So the first step in the healing, in the integration, is to bring the unconscious shadow elements of the mind, all of those aspects which we've rejected, to begin to open to them, to embrace them, to feel them, to feel the suffering of them, to allow compassion to arise. The next level of healing or integration has to do with this mind-body split. The sense of, I have a body, as if there's someone, some self inside, to whom the body belongs. That's a basic problem. How to work with healing that separation healing that split. A good part of our practice has been to observe the actuality of our experience in each moment. And what is it that we say? When we bring our attention to bear in a precise and careful way to each moment's experience, we see that there are two processes going on. There's the material process of the body and the concurrent knowing of that process. So when we walk, the movement of the leg is a physical process. Along with that physical process, the material process, is the knowing of that movement. When we breathe, the breathing is a physical process. Along with it is the knowing. Now it might sound like this is actually creating more of a split. The the material process and the knowing. But it's very interesting how the seeing of those two processes actually heals the duality. We think that we have a body because we identify with some part of the mind, we identify with the knowing, we create a knower, we create a witness, we create an observer with that process of identifying with the knowing. When mindfulness is brought to bear on each moment of experience, And we see that the totality of that experience is a certain object, let's say a movement, and the knowing of it. And we don't identify with either. We don't identify with the physical process. We don't identify with the knowing. There's the simple awareness that what we are those, these two processes going on. 
begin to see that neither the knowing or the object belong to anybody. This talk is continued on side two of this cassette at this point.
begin to see that neither the knowing or the object belong to anybody. The Buddha expressed this in one discourse in which he, with characteristic lucidity, expressed the totality of the, of the world, the totality of the universe, in six phrases. It was a good job. <laughs> what did he say? It's called, this little discourse, it's a very short little discourse, is called the all. Right? What's the all? The I, visible objects, and the knowing, the knowing of them. The ear, sound, and the knowing of it. The nose, smell, which comes, and the knowing of it. Tongue and taste, and the knowing of it. The body and sensations, the knowing of it. The mind and mind objects, and the knowing of it. He didn't say that these experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, belong to a third party. Right? It was kind of standing back here and all of these experiences are coming to this. Do you see the difference between the conception of experience belonging to somebody and seeing that what we are is the process of this changing experience? Then we can relate to this mind-body in a more unified way rather than the sense of separation of it belonging to someone. Becoming mindful of this knowing an object, knowing an object in each moment, that being what we are. There's There's a very interesting mythological symbol for this level of integration. This mythological symbol is that of a centaur, which has, it's a being, mythological being, that has the body of a horse and the top half of a person. Now just contrast the difference of the image of a centaur with the body of a horse and the top part of a human, with the image of somebody riding a horse. Very different. Mostly we relate to experience as if we're riding the horse rather than being that organism. And so through our attention, through our mindfulness and awareness, we begin to integrate that split we reunite these separate parts of ourselves. Okay, so we, we open up to the persona in the shadow. We reunite all the different elements of the mind. We begin to see how this mind-body process is interdependent And that what we are is the interdependence of these two processes rather than the body belonging to someone. So that that split is integrated. The final integration is when we can transcend the duality of separation between this organism and the environment. We can get outside of our skins. As a little experiment now, I'd like to do a little seeing meditation. For this, everybody has to have their eyes open. This little experiment. The first thing to do as you focus on seeing, become clear about the difference between the physical sensations around the eyes 
and actually what is seen. Because often the sense of I am seeing comes from an identification with the sensations we feel around the eye. And we, we identify with that and then have that sense of this person here looking out. So see very clearly that there are two different things. The sensations around the eyes is one experience and what is seen is the other. Does that seem clear? Okay, now... Let your attention go totally to what is seen. Just, you know, the room and everything in the room. Settle into what is seen. Remember not to get identified with the sensations around the eyes. That's a different experience. What is seen is simply color and form and shapes and shadow and light and a feeling of depth perception. And all of that is seen. In the scene, where is the inside and outside? to quote the Buddha, in the scene, there is just what is seen. There's just what is seen, just this experience, which is all of this. There's no separation in that. There's no sense of I. There's no duality. In the scene, there is just the scene. In the herd, there is just the herd. Is the sound inside or outside? In the herd, there is just the herd. In the sense, smell, taste, and touch, there is just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. Our whole practice is to drop into this level of being with just what there is, and in that, this final level of dualistic perception falls away. This change of direction from contracting in the face of suffering and creating all these levels of duality to opening to each level of experience, to opening to the pain, to opening to the pleasure, allows also for a transformation of our understanding. Because as we open in this way, rather than contract, we begin to experience that happiness comes from the opening. Happiness does not come from resisting pain or resisting sorrow or resisting hurt. Our understanding is transformed and out of that transformation of understanding arises this wellspring of compassion. Because when our understanding is transformed, we are no longer consuming our energy in the avoidance of pain or unpleasantness, as often people do in their lives. So much energy is spent trying to protect oneself from pain and suffering and sorrow that it totally blocks the compassion from coming forth. As soon as we stop that resisting, Stop that pulling away and enter into it, open to it, like Ryokan expressed. Then compassion becomes the natural response of that heart which is open. 
how do we do that in our practice, in our sitting, in our walking? Really, what we've been cultivating for these months, and this is another way of looking at mindfulness, we've really been cultivating a compassionate attitude towards each moment's experience. Compassion and attitude means one of openness. What Trungpa Rinpoche called basic warmth. Learning to relate to each moment's experience with a basic warmth, without avoiding those experiences which are unpleasant or painful, without trying to hold on to the pleasant ones. And so every moment of mindfulness every moment of attention, we're actually cultivating a very compassionate attitude. This creates, this this sense of compassion creates a wonderful spaciousness in the mind. It allows for what is called in the Chinese the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. I think we can all get a sense of the freedom in the mind and the joy in the mind, the joy in the heart, when we're open to the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. When we become that dance of changing energy rather than struggling with it. And out of that comes a deepening sense of faith, a deepening sense of trust, It's a short haiku poem by an old Zen master. It says, simply trust. Don't also the petals flutter down just like that. Simply trust. Don't also the petals flutter down just like that. Can we allow each moment's experience to flutter down? just like that. No big deal. Just the arising and passing and flowing and changing of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. How do we manifest this attitude? How do we manifest this compassion and attitude in the world? That's That's a question for us now. We've been practicing it How do we bring it out to the world? It's obvious, I think, to all of us that we absolutely need the foundation of that compassion for everything within ourselves. That unless we have it here, we're not going to be able to bring that attitude to anything else. So every moment of practice, every moment of attention, every moment of awareness is the development of compassion in that way. Because it means openness, a warm openness, a connected openness. Then as we bring it out to the world, we have to sustain and maintain that quality of openness to the suffering that we'll experience in the same way that we've opened to the pain and sorrow and suffering that exists here. There's a lot of suffering in the world. What's important is not to confuse compassion and sorrow. Because often people, in experiencing the suffering of the world, feel tremendous sorrow and mistake that for compassion. And they're very different mind states. Because sorrow has the component of aversion in it, and compassion does not. Very big difference in attitude. Can we be open to the suffering without aversion towards it? Because if there's aversion, that's simply a manifestation of resistance. And again, we begin that whole process of contracting. 
We resist, we contract, we separate, we create all those dualistic levels again. Sorrow about suffering and compassion for suffering are two very different things. In compassion, there's no aversion. In compassion, there's the feeling of it and the response to it. Sorrow creates separation. Compassion creates a sense of oneness. And in that oneness, and a challenge for all of us, is to see whether we can open to the suffering without discrimination. Generally, we're selective in our compassion. Selective compassion. You know, we we can open to the suffering of some people, and others we get angry at. A way of coming to a really universal compassion is to see that the compassion is a response to the suffering, and the suffering arises from ignorance. And so that really we're feeling compassion for ignorance. Poem that Jack read earlier on in the retreat, which I'd like to read a portion of again, because it so beautifully expresses this quality of openness to all the suffering, of not being selective. It's a poem from Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese monk, And the name of it is Please Call Me By My True Names. And the me in the title is life, is experience. Please call me by my true names. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant, selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up And so the door of my heart can be felt open, can be left open, the door of compassion. That's a very open heart. It's really a heart that embraces all of the suffering and sees that all of the suffering comes from ignorance. Out of that openness, out of that non-separation, we allow for the natural, the intuitive, the spontaneous response of compassion.
Do you have any questions? You mentioned knowing and an object of knowing as sort of coming into existence and passing away. I would like you to comment on what it is to know something to be true. Process. For example, ignorance. It is true that ignorance leads to suffering. Knowing that truth, what does that what does that mean? Somehow it applies to me a permanence rather than an impermanence. The knowing the truth implies the permanence? Knowing of that truth, right. that moment after moment, it is also true. Good question. And I have a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It's a really interesting one. There are two... Things, for want of a better word for the moment, there are two things which are permanent. Everything's impermanent, except for these two things. Right? <laughs> and it's very interesting what these two are because they couldn't be more unalike. One of them is Nibbana, the unconditioned. It's permanent because it's not born. And because it's not born, it doesn't die. The other thing which is permanent are concepts. We use the same word. Today I'm Joseph, tomorrow I'm Joseph, the next day I'm Joseph. This is a hand today, tomorrow, the next day. The word hand remains the same. And it's precisely because of this that we get into so much trouble. (laughs) Because we live so much in the world of concept, taking the concept to be the experience, and because concepts don't change, because there's that quality of permanence to them, we then are under the delusion that the experience itself is permanent. And in so many ways, we get caught by that. So much of the practice is going from the level of our concepts to the level of direct experience in which we see that there's constant change all the time. Concepts can be true or false. And so, the knowing that you're talking about is really the abstraction from experience of a certain truth. That concept stays the same. When we come down to the experience, to the level of knowing an object, we see that the process of change is taking place. This is two questions kind of intertwined. It seems like it's possible to to have an opening to suffering that's extremely kind of clear about what's going on. And uh, like, for example, on a tree like this. And uh, at times. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like it's also possible to be involved in a lot of activities where uh, it's too fast for clarity. And it could be possible to open to the suffering of ignorance, I guess. Be kind of open about it, maybe. <laughs> but I was, I was wondering if you could maybe talk about the relation with uh, that, and also how that relates to choice about situations you're going to be in where you're more likely to be clear, right. and how the openness can go to the mind. Ajahn Chah, who's this 
meditation master from Thailand, he had a, a relevant statement about that. He said that there are two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering which leads to more suffering and the suffering which leads to the end of suffering. And really the difference has to do, as you point out, with our level of clarity, with our level of understanding about the experience. And so we all know, we get, we get involved in situations of suffering, either you know, this process of our own minds or, or out in the world, and because the mindfulness is not strong enough, because the forces of it are too intense, we get all embroiled and identified and reactive. And so that's just getting caught up in the suffering that's leading to more suffering. But I would not call that open to it. That, that's rather an identified involvement with it. And so when I say open to suffering, the implication of that is that in that openness... There's a, there's a quality of awareness, of feeling it without identifying with it, of being with it without aversion. All of that is what's intended in the sense of opening to it. And it's practice. It's, it's certainly not going to be perfect. And if you find yourselves caught up in situations where you're getting lost you know, in the suffering, it's helpful to retreat a bit. Not to establish some balance, to establish some clarity. Uh, in your initial comments, you were giving a psychological interpretation, causal connection for the split, three different kinds of split you're talking about. I wondered whether that's a Buddhist idea or one that is coming from way afterwards because one can easily see the cause and effect to be just the opposite of that. The psychological effects that we're talking about, the separation and the suffering, could just as easily come from the split as the split coming from the psychological effect. Didn't get it. You were saying the causal connection is that the suffering comes about because we are split from reality, because we want to avoid the experience of the suffering. So therefore we split ourselves off in these various ways. It could come just the other way around, that man evolves. Without that causal connection, there was a point, like in the West, the split between subject and object didn't exist till around the 8th or 9th century, or probably the 7th or 6th century B.C., around Homeric times. It's historically, that's when it happened in the Western world. Now, the kind of suffering we're talking about could have arisen as a result of that split between subject and object. You're saying that that subject and object split happened because of that reason. So, I think that scientists can argue either way, depending upon what culture you're coming from, as to which is cause and which is effect. Is it clear now? It's clearer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just two comments about it. Uh, one is um, that my sense, my an intuition, which I have no scientific basis for whatsoever, is that the subject-object split did not happen at a certain period in time. It may be that the concept about it evolved at a particular period of time. But there's just this sense that in unenlightened beings, that subject-object split is there. That's, again, just a, a possibility to consider. Uh, the other is the...